Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. One of two podcasts we've found out about cars and films and movies and YouTube and TV and stuff. And so yeah, our old intro is gone completely. Yeah. We are no longer the single, the single, the only place on the, the internet to hear about cars and movies and films and TV <laughs> and stuff. There's another. There is another. <laughs> Hello to to our friends at Reels and Wheels. I don't know if they even know we exist, but we are now one of two. So for the brotherhood of automotive car content, hello to them. And if you are interested, please go and check them out and tell us what you think. Definitely. Uh, and whether we should do what they do or whether they should do more of what we do. Probably, they, they probably have fewer dick jokes and stupidness. and They do. Constant swearing about how much we don't like <laughs> Christian Horner. <laughs> That's Martin Spain. I'm Chris Ratcliffe. We're here for episode 51 after a little Easter break. Sorry about that. We said something along the lines of we're doing them every three weeks and we're getting back on schedule in the last episode, episode 50. And then we promptly didn't release one for like six weeks. <laughs> I must apologise. My whole family got COVID for two weeks. So that wasn't particularly much fun. And then we all had Easter holidays and stuff. So quite frankly, um, we've been rubbish at getting back onto schedule. But here we are. And hopefully we will be able to get back on some kind of vague <laughs> schedule. Well, following on from this, because we do have some more ideas. We do. But let's talk about what what we've been watching in the last five to six weeks since we last potted. Let's start with you for this one, because you've been travelling to actual car-related places. Kind of. I have. Well, tangentially car-related places. I went on holiday at Easter time with my family to the Lake District for the first time. It's gorgeous. I want to move there. I stayed in an extraordinarily nice flat, which is available to rent for very reasonable rates on cottages.com. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I know the owners, except I am, and I do. And <laughs> I want lots of you to go and rent it because it's awesome. But it's just brilliant. You know, coming from North Hertfordshire, which is flat and featureless and dull, going to somewhere like the Lake District, Lake District which is none of those things, uh, was wonderful. But I had an ulterior motive in that I really, really, really wanted to go to Coniston Water uh, because I have a fascination with land speed records and water speed records. And that is where Donald Campbell set the water speed record for a time in his Bluebird K7. I was fascinated to go and see Coniston Water as a place for breaking water speed records, to go to the little museum that talks about Bluebird and all the attempts to to set the water speed record and Donald Campbell as a person and how he came to set it and then how he unfortunately came to lose his life in 1967 on Coniston Water trying to break 300 miles an hour in his Bluebird K7 boat. And it's fascinating and it's morbid and quite emotional because you're seeing newspaper headlines, like real newspaper headlines that have the famous quote from his radio call that says, I'm going, just as the boat kind of noses up as, as it start, it starts to oscillate on its second run, which is faster. Uh, and it starts to just catch air underneath the nose and then it flies and and you know boats aren't meant to fly and it hits the water with an almighty smack and that was that and his last radio call is uh, I'm going I'm going and then that's it and it's it's eerie to see those quotes on headlines and to see the still photograph of the boat in nose up attitude just before it takes off and then hits the water and and to know that just down the road if 10 minutes walk away is actual Coniston water where this all happened. So I had a great time going there and kind of subjecting my family to my misty-eyed reminiscences <laughs> and, and fascination with this kind of thing. They're, they're very tolerant. But what I found interesting was I came back to the flat and immediately went on YouTube to look up more history about the water speed record and about Donald Campbell and the, the K7 boat. And it's been restored by a team of people over years and years. They've they found it in, I think, the mid-90s, maybe the 2000s, I'm not sure. They they basically located the wreck and the, the remains of Donald Campbell, which got to be properly interred and have a proper burial. But they've restored the boat back to working order. Wow. And I found a 20-minute sky mini documentary, which is really good, which shows this restored boat being brought back onto not Coniston Water, um, but somewhere in Scotland where they run it. And you get to see it running at speed, 150 miles an hour. And that is fucking fast. When you see it in camera, you you get a feeling for what double that might have looked like in 1967. Wow. And it's, it's almost terrifying. And, you know, they run the boat probably too fast 
and they're a bit too keen. And right at the very end, you know, circumstances could have gone another way and they could have ended up with another big crash. And so, you know, they 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 step away right at the point where they, they should have really wound it down. They, they, they kind of take a step back and go, okay, we won't do that again. But it's fascinating to see something that you you've watched on grainy film and then you know crashed and sank to the bottom of the water have been effectively resurrected from the dead. And I'm not sure quite how I feel about whether that's a good idea or not, whether that's respectful or not, but they've done it. And to see it running again and to see the difference between it running in old school grainy 16 mil and super high definition 2020 video footage was amazing. So we're going to link in the show notes to this Sky documentary. If you have any fascination with land or water speed records, I urge you to watch it. It's 20 minutes long. It's absolutely fascinating. And do go and read the Wikipedia entry on Donald Campbell and the Bluebird K7 because it's worth your time. These people put their lives on the line with very rickety vehicles and very shaky understandings of the properties of hydrodynamics and ground effect and so on. And it just blows my mind that they were able to do these kinds of speeds in 1967, where there were no available computers and no computational fluid dynamics, just jet engine and balls. Is the Bluebird one of those crafts? And I I kind of think of, is it the 917 Porsche, where if you see it without the body on, it's just a framework with an engine strapped to it. It's not quite like that, but it's you know it's it's built around um, uh, it's built around a jet engine. I forget which one, but yeah, it, there's a lot of it that's just basically it's a jet engine that has some pontoons on the front and a seat. Um, there is and a seat and and there is sort of passing attention paid to stability and harnessing of, of ground effect but honestly they were doing it by by eye and by slide rule and by testing and they were, I'm not entirely sure they were getting the right conclusions from their testing given what had happened wow. you know they, they'd had a serious crash before with Donald Campbell and you know he'd really seriously hurt himself and come back from that and this was basically seen as a last ditch attempt to to do it and then stop doing it altogether to break the 300 mile an hour barrier and then that was it he was done his his legacy cemented because of course he had a very famous father Malcolm Campbell who set so many land speed records before him and I think he was trying to put his own legacy you know firmly out there as well uh, but yes, very fascinating. If you haven't been to Coniston Water and you're in the area, do go and check out the the little museum there. And the the Coniston Water itself is fantastic, and has the side benefit of if you hang around long enough, you'll probably get buzzed by some F35s <laughs> or some F15s or some some typhoons. We we got a, a full ship of F35s flying very low over the waters, which was fantastic. So yes, Lake District holiday, land speed record, water speed record, good. How about you? What have you been watching? I watched the Max Mosley documentary that is on Netflix. This was one, I think we covered it some time ago when it was announced and then never actually watched it. And it's it be, it kept catching my eye on Netflix. And I, was, I thought, I had an evening. I thought, I'm going to watch it and see what it's actually like. And if you are fairly new to Formula One, if you are of the Drive to Survive era and you don't know who Max Mosley was, during the early 90s to the kind of mid-2000s, Max Mosley loomed very, very large over F1. He's a former team owner. He became president of the FIA, worked closely with Bernie Eccleston, um, basically gifting him the TV rights for everything. And then later was disgraced in a in a in a in a sex scandal in one of the newspapers the documentary i don't want to say it's a puff piece it is an authorized documentary he is absolutely front and center in it, it he doesn't shy away from some of the more difficult aspects of his life so his father was oswald mosley who was a prominent fascist in the uh, early 20th century, friends of Hitler, amongst other people. And Max Mosley would attend these rallies with, with his father. People would be trying to attack him. He p- would punch back, ended up, in, uh, ended up in court. With the circles that he moved in, I'm paraphrasing this 
hugely. He then started a Formula One racing team, having done a bit of racing himself. He worked with, um, I say, Bernie Eccleston. He worked with uh, Charlie Whiting. And I think Herbie Blash as well, possibly in their kind of March and Brabham days. Went into F1. Uh, After that, he, um, like I say, got into the newspapers for, for rather the wrong reasons. But the whole documentary is framed around his work with Euro NCAP. And his legacy, as far as this documentary goes, is very much around what they've done for car safety. The number of people that they have helped either prevent injury or have saved lives around uh, through Euro NCAP and through their testing. And one of the big thrusts of this documentary is they are trying to get the first five-star Euro NCAP car into India. Now, what's interesting with Euro NCAP is that it is not affiliated with the motor manufacturers. They buy the cars, crash them, test them, you know, do all the checks they need to, and then they present the scores after the fact. It's truly independent. I seem to remember, wasn't the Renault Megane, like the, like the um, I see you baby shaking that ass, wasn't that Renault Megane one of the first to get a five-star rating from Euro NCAP? Well, this was a thing, so... Or at least back in the day. I remember it being a big yes. deal. So this was part of it, was that they actually have footage of, I think, working from memory, the Society of Motor Traders. Because when they started doing this, they went, right, we are going to crash test these cars and we are going to give it a score based on our own criteria. And the um, motor trade at the time went, well, hang on, we already do all this testing. We already have shown it safe. We already do all this stuff. It's going to add complexity. It's going to add cost. You know, people aren't really interested in it. And then the first car that came along that had a five-star rating, they put it all over their marketing and they went, hey, look, we've got a five-star rated safe car. Because I'm sure this happened when, you know, during my formative years either growing up or whatever, I, I remember the ads shouting about yeah. this five-star Euro NCAP rating. And I don't know that you see it all that much now or that I pay attention to it because car safety has become de rigueur for everybody. You, you assume that all all new cars are incredibly safe compared to the kind of rust box tin shit things that we used to cannon around in. You think about like an old Vauxhall Nova or a Mark II Fiesta and how easily those would fold into nothing when yeah. colliding with a wall or an articulated lorry or there something. There is a bit of crash footage in this of a, I want to say, metro of some description. And it is utterly terrifying. You watch it now and you're just like... How did we ever think that was acceptable? Uh, the Renault Laguna was the first uh, five-star. That's right. I did buy one of those, actually, very briefly. Ran a diesel Laguna for a bit, which was mega because it was dirt cheap and had loads of kit on it. And we found out a year later why it was dirt cheap when the front suspension collapsed. <laughs> that would do it. But um, but the, the interesting thing with Euro NCAP, and it's kind of back in the news a bit now, Um Go listen to the Motoring Podcast for more information. Because they have this thing of, we set the agenda and we force people to come with us. And the motor industry now is going, hang on, you're setting all of these standards and, you know, there are now cars that can't become five-star cars because they've got the safety kit. And if we put the safety kit on, they'll be more expensive and then they'll be less accessible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, this is kind of... Mosley's MO. So you watch the documentary and they, you know, he talks about ruffling feathers. He talks about um, going up against Jean-Marie Balestra and just being like, or if, you know, if you're not going to do what we want, we're just going to bypass you. We're just going to, you know, the, the Foca Fisa wars and the breakaway championships was all them going, well, we're going to go and do it. And it's up to you to do something about it with F1 though he, the, he what he would do was put something absolutely outrageous that he knew the teams would all unanimously object to and then he'd yeah. row it back to what he wanted all along yeah you know he'd go I'm going to put the 
resource restriction agreement in 2009 is going to be 20 million quid. And the teams all went, what? We can't do that. That's our catering budget. And he'd go, all right then. Well, what about 60 million quid, which is what he wanted yeah. to get to? You know, it didn't work in that instance, but that was the way he Very worked. Much so. Put something outrageous out there to trigger the reaction and then row it back so that they feel like they've won when actually it's what he wanted all along. And that's one thing in this documentary is that it has a feeling of a confession it feels like, as we uh, yeah, we now know, and, and sadly, he's been in the news more recently for um, the way his life ended, um, which was very tragic. It, but it had a feeling to me of, I'm just going to tell my story. There's interviews with Bernie, contemporary interviews with Bernie for this documentary, which is kind of the same thing. There was stuff from Charlie Whiting, again, the late Charlie Whiting, where they talk about the things that they did and the things that went on. There's even like Hugh Grant's interviewed with it because of the work he did around privacy and with Hacked Off after he, after he was in the tabloids. It doesn't go after him. It's not an expose. It's, but, it, but it never soft pedals. It never goes easy on him. And I think Max has that loyally ability of stating a case and stating an objective. And he said like, in 94, after Senna's crash, he said, that was an opportunity for me to put through my safety changes. And the, te- the teams at that point couldn't not agree. They couldn't push back and say, oh, no, no, we don't need more safety. Interestingly, do you know, we, uh, quite a few podcasts ago, we reviewed uh, one, Life on yeah. the Limit, a documentary from, I think, 2013. Mm. And Mosley is in that, and he's talking about his reaction to seeing the crashes back when Formula One drivers dying was an almost bi-weekly thing, mm. you know? And, and he says very clearly, and with a, a degree of emotion in his voice, that he swore to himself that if, you, if he were ever in a position to make a difference to safety, he would do everything in his power to make that happen. And it's clear that that was that's his way of absolving himself from perhaps some of the things he did that maybe he wasn't so proud of or that he knows society will judge him for. And I've always wondered whether or not the reason that the leak happened to News of the World or whoever it was, was Ron Dennis getting revenge for the $100 million fine that Max Mosley pushed through when McLaren were caught with some of Ferrari's IP back in 2007. Mm. And, you know, Mosley hated Ron Dennis and it's often said that Mosley penalised them that amount because he didn't like Ron Dennis and so he just basically piled on him. And I've often wondered if Ron Dennis basically got his own back a few years later because that's what got Mosley out of F1. The team said, you know, we, we can't if you be associated. agree to resign, then... Yeah, we can't be associated with you. You need to resign and step down. You're right. He has, he's a complicated man, but he does leave a legacy behind that is important and worth remembering. And I think, you know, I spent an awful lot of time hating Mosley because of the, the, the iron grasp he had over Formula One and the rule set that, that he would enforce and the way that he and Bernie formed this impenetrable dual axis enforcement and control system that you just couldn't get around and Formula One was going to the shit because they wouldn't come out of the 19th century. (laughs) Very much so. But they also did some stuff that was worthwhile. So if you are of a mind to to find out more about Max Mosley's life and particularly his work in safety, it sounds like this is a good documentary. And I'd recommend going back and watching One Life on the Limit because not only is is, uh, his parts in it quite illuminating, but the rest of the documentary is pretty good too. Yeah. And it was interesting, actually, about the same time I saw that, speaking of interviews and thinking about how Max approaches these things, I'll put, again, I'll put a link to this in the show notes. There was an interview on the BBC um, for a segment called Hard Talk, which sounds, which does sound a little bit like an adult sex line. <laughs> I'm reminded of um, my one of my favourite movies from the 90s, uh, Pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater, who, who had a, a DJ, uh, oh, it's so good, go and watch it, it's amazing. <laughs> um, but he he was a like a shy 
college or shy school kid who'd moved from a to, to a different area from the one he grew up in. Yeah. And to get around that, he had a DJ alter ego that would broadcast pirate radio station, and his nickname was Hard Harry. Oh God. <laughs> and would do all sorts of like sexual double entendres. I'd watch the movie. I'm not selling it well at all. It is a brilliant <laughs> teen movie. It's 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 right up there with Ten Things I Hate About You as oh, being a brilliant teen movie. Oh, that is that is high praise indeed. I will go and check it out. But this this interview with Nikita Mazepin was not a sports interview. I don't know who the interviewing journalist was, but it was about half an hour of somebody really taking him to task and saying, you know, what's your opinion of of, of Putin invading Ukraine? So, well, I've said I'm not going to give an opinion. Well, what do you think about, about those other athletes that, that have, have made gestures either for or against? Well, you know, I don't think it's really my place. And this guy just really saying, you know, your father is a close associate of Putin. Putin's best mate. Basically. Let's not kid around here. And you are racing under the Russian flag. You have to have a view on this, whether it's your view is positive or negative. And Nikita, who's obviously had some very good media training, is really, really... I think a lot of people would have stormed out of the interview. It Such was the, the kind of the intensity of it. But, you know... I think he's really in a position where he cannot talk badly about Russia. He studiously avoids using certain terms like invasion. But at the same time, he's trying to manage his situation. And I'm I'm assuming that he's never had a situation where somebody said no to him before. This sounds a lot like sort of effectively mind control where you can keep asking the same question any different way and you get the same pre-programmed <laughs> response. I haven't watched it. I, I The problem I have with Mazepin is Formula One has basically moved on without him. Let's face it, yep. he was he was not a lost talent no. that we're, we're crying about him not being on the 2022 grid. And he was there because they had a lot of money mm. from now questionable sources and he's not there now because everyone has unilaterally decided that they do not wish to be associated with Russia or Russian athletes or Russian money. And we've got K-Mag back now. And quite frankly, that is for the betterment of Formula One right now and Haas themselves who have lost a poisonous atmosphere in their team that came from Mazepin and particularly his father and of gained K-Mag who is awesome. Yes. Anyway, shall we be- Let's be- do the news. Before we do the news. I like doing my James make No, let's do the news. Let's do the news. <laughs> well, I think we've won What were you what were you going to do there? What were you going to do before the news? Shall we do what's in our glasses? I was going to do that before the reviews. Okay, well let's let's do, let's do that before the reviews then. Because there's been a, okay, a there's let's, been some let's, let's, news. let's go back. We let's the news, James May's news. The news. <laughs> Sorry, I like doing that. Um, all right, let's do the news because we have actual news. It has been a while since we've podcasted and so people have had the chance to do newsworthy things and indeed they have just this very week uh, because, and if you're playing the drinking game, please drink now, <laughs> the Fast and Furious franchise has lost its headline director. Justin Lin has left the production of Fast X or Fast 10, I'm not sure which, as they were about to start shooting or within the first week of shooting. I'm not not totally clear on that. But the man who gave us Tokyo Drift and Fast 5, amongst others, in the franchise, has left... You know, he's he's given us some of the best movies in the franchise. You know, fuck the best movies in the franchise. Let's not fuck about. Yep. And he's gone, right as they were about to start shooting the 10th the movie. No one really knows why. They say it's amicable, but that's bullshit in Hollywood terms. That's them lying to say someone had some massive blow-up with Vin Diesel, probably. (laughs) Did they say creative differences? I can't remember. It might have been creative differences. It might have just been, fuck me, I'm sick of pandering to this wizened (laughs) boiled potato and his every whim. Wizened boiled potato now has to be our, our, our default reference <laughs> to Vin Diesel. I mean, things, I like Vin Diesel. I like Vin Diesel's movies, but man, he takes this franchise so seriously instead of, you know, looking up and going, yeah, this is all fucking stupid and I know it and I love it. But he's all like, this is so creatively fulfilling and brilliant and you know, we're going to be looked on as delivering 
art with a capital R. And unfortunately, it's not. It's just, you know, ridiculous tosh, especially now they've gone to space. Yeah. Spoiler alert for Fast 9. Anyway, you know, they've lost their guiding light as far as writing and directing and producing goes. Now, that doesn't sound like that hard a job, but there are a lot of characters in these movies, right? And they've got to keep them all happy, especially the baked potato guy. So who are they going to replace him with? I voted Michael Bay in my head, but that would just be ludicrous or awesome, depending on which side of the Michael Bay coin you come down on. Um, but the current contender is a guy called Louis Leterrier, who has done a movie called Now You See Me, and Now You See Me 2, and some other things for Netflix quite recently. He's been doing the Doc Dark Crystal, colon, Age of Resistance. And he did both of the Transporter movies. So he did. He did both... Oh, the first and the second one, not the third one. Yes. The third one was dreadful, although it does contain one of my very favourite lines, which I won't go into now because it's offensive. Um, but, <laughs> but yes, so uh, basically it could be he's being brought on because the Fast and the Furious family has Jason Statham grudgingly shoehorned into it and he's worked with Jason Statham before. That may be the, the reason. It could be that he's a safe pair of hands who is probably quite cheap and we'll just make another movie like out of building blocks of action sequences and stuff. But you know, this this the the this is like a roadblock in the way of Fast Ten steamrollering its mm. way to our screens as I mix all of my metaphors there. <laughs> but yes, it's it's interesting because I thought Justin Lin had made a pretty good return back to the franchise and yeah. was just going to be like, woohoo, this is my victory lap. I'm going to do these last two movies, sign it off, and go and roll around in my big pile of money. Uh, but it turns out that he's probably just exhausted and sick of dealing with the guy that looks like a microwaved raisin. <laughs> anyway, other news. Yes. Uh, Tangent Vector are doing Top Gear YouTube channel American Tuned with Rob Darm. Now... I have to admit that Rob Darm was a new name for me before I uh, I saw this news. I know him from other YouTube channels. I think he's the guy that does lots of rotary MX5. No, no, sorry, RX7 yeah. stuff. That's rotary. He isn't does. It? Sorry, he does. MX5. So his YouTube channel, which is RX7 heavy, he does a lot of kind of build and car stuff. His Filmmaking in his channel is is really really good fun. Uh, I've I've kind of been binging his channel for like the last week since uh, since I learned about it. But interestingly, so Tangent Vector, the production company, and Rob Darm are doing a new series, not unlike something that they would have done for Drive back in the day. It's that self-contained, really nicely shot series for Top Gear, who are seemingly now commissioning new content that isn't connected to either magazine. I was going to add to this, the Top Gear YouTube channel has started to include stuff that is not connected to the magazine that is more like automotive YouTubering stuff. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's the, if I look on their channel now, they've got 40-year-old Mini gets a long overdue detail. They're cashing in on that whole detailing is awesome on YouTube type thing. Mm. They've had, um, what did I see the other the other day on there that was... That was quite unusual for them to have but i really enjoyed watching um a guy building a wiring harness for a lotus exige uh racing exige <laughs> interesting um so literally I mean, and it was interesting because you're watching the artistry of this guy building a a motorsport quality racing harness that's going to have to deal with high temperatures and so on and so on and you're watching him build it from first principles which is absolutely not the kind of thing that this the Top Gear YouTube channel used to be known for. It was just stuff on the magazine and every now and then Chris Harris would pop on with Jack Ricks and they'd chat and then he'd go away again. Yeah. And there is still that, you know, there's there's a, a piece with Chris Harris meeting Gary Oldman when they talk about Gary Oldman's new TV show, um, Slow Horses. But there's also these things creeping in, like the you know, first episode of American Tuned, which is a V8-swapped 470-brake horsepower Mad Max-style MX-5, which sounds crazy as hell. It, it's well worth a watch because it's a heck of a... It's it Right, so it's a great car with a great builder, great production. It's a proper... The thumbnail looks great, but I th- they are, you're right. They're, li- they're like the old Drive channel sort of series where they had tuned and they mm. had um, Drive and Protect with Larry and, and so on and so on. They've got these handcrafted 
episode names like the wiring harness bill, but they've got somebody building a bespoke <laughs> wheel for a classic Jaguar race car, which I presume is those wire wheels that look insane to clean. Yeah. They've got all sorts going on here that are not their normal or not their usual output that we've been used to for the last however many years. And it's kind of exciting. I think they're getting like significantly fewer views than the standard classic Top Gear channel stuff mm. because everyone's like, oh, this is new and change. I don't like change. <laughs> but I think this is, you know, it's branching out and it's it's good. So yes, Tangent Vector, great job. Definitely. Yeah, well worth a watch. Also, another channel that we haven't talked a lot about in the past is Car Throttle. And Alex Kirsten, who is their kind of, primary presenter has left to go and do his own thing now this is interesting for a couple of reasons so he's still gonna be doing car throttle work he's coming in as a as a freelancer but what i found quite interesting and maybe while i'm talking you can quickly do some live research about how many subscribers the car throttle channel has i will do that sir but I was looking at Alex's new channel, Auto Alex, which I looked, it had one video that said he was going to do his own thing, and it had 160,000 subscribers. And I went, hang on. He's got 240,000 subscribers as of right now. Yep. Uh, the Car Throttle channel has 3.1 million. So on the 27th of April, which is a week ago, that channel had... 2,000 subscribers. <laughs> Thursday, it, yeah. it added 6,000. Friday, he posted a video which got 26,000 views and gained him 20,000. It's currently 858,000 views. Last Sunday, his channel with one video on it gained 62,000 subscribers and on Monday, gained 70,000 subscribers. The, and the reason why I find this is really interesting is. What this means on YouTube when a big channel has somebody who either leaves or starts a second channel or whatever it might be, just how much the audience will follow presenters. Interestingly, I don't subscribe to, to Car Throttle at all. I don't think I've ever watched one of their videos and I'm a very infrequent visitor to their website. Yet I started seeing Auto Alex cars crop up in my I mean, my YouTube homepage, it's the first video on there at the moment, regardless of whether I refresh or whatever else I watch, mm. it's on there like, hey, this is a thing. And I don't know him from, from Adam. I've got no idea who he is, but he's got one video that's got nearly 900,000 views in five days. And I've heard of Car Throttle. And, and so, you know, I, it's almost inciting me to click on it. And if it turns <laughs> out to be good, then maybe I will subscribe. So it's it's fascinating to see how these things work and how, I presume, you know, viewers who watched stuff on Top Gear or Driftworks or whatever yep. also watch Car Throttle and therefore you might like this guy's channel because he's also on Car Throttle or something like that. I don't exactly. really know how it works, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a little insight into the algorithm, but also you're right, how people will follow YouTube personalities. I guess, you know, the, the original OG example of this is watching what happened when Chris Harris left Drive mm. and, and went on to do his own thing in a number of formats, how he took an audience with him and was able to build a channel and a following off of that that in no small part would have helped him be in line for that Top Gear job when it came up. Oh, God, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, moving on, one last thing. a um, Not a YouTube personality and, and oh, again, sadly, the late uh, Barry Norman. The BBC have started putting some of his old film reviews on YouTube, and why not? If you've if you're too young to remember Barry Norman, he could review a film. Most of the ones I've seen so far are three minutes and twenty seconds long, which frankly puts us to shame. But he is absolutely somebody who who could just encapsulate a film, describe it who's in it, what the plot is, what he thought of it. There's very much sort of part of my childhood and, and part of my inspiration on, on here, and it's they're well worth a watch. We could hum the, the film 95 music, <laughs> you know, without without trying. Oh, yes. Um, and, and it was always like film 91. It was, it was always with the year, but 
it's it's an insight into i think the the kind of almost the lost art of that era of bbc training that forced you to cut to the absolute mm. you know the, the 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 crux of whatever it is you're talking about in the shortest amount of time and and do it with the best possible language and personality. if you want to know how to review things and yeah and personality and it was I'm going to have to go back and see if I can find reviews for some of my favourite movies that I remember him reviewing and him really enjoying or not enjoying. I'm thinking of Back to the Future as one I remember him really, really enjoying. That's there. Um, and I want to kind of go and dig out another few. But if if you want to know how the professionals do it, like properly professionals do it, then you have to go and watch some of these. And if you've never heard of Barry Norman, then you owe it to yourself to go and just see if he's reviewed some of your favourite mm. older movies and and observe a master at work he is a legend of film in the uk rightly so and and if you don't live in the uk then this is all going to go like whoosh <laughs> over your head but do you just go and google barry norman review and then type in a movie from like the 80s or the 90s and and see if they've got some of your faves there and see what he thought of them absolutely because they're iconic they are right what are you drinking before we move on to the review time we should do the what are you drinking or what are you imbibing the the bailis has ruined this section <laughs> section i have something relevant check me out i am drinking oh, i know what this is i'm drinking the other half of my sample of coach built whiskey i got it as part of the our whiskey monthly whiskey tasting subscription thing which i highly recommend because they do a virtual uh, guided tasting every month. And so you get two whiskies and the whiskey makers will come onto a YouTube live thing and you can talk to them and all that sort of stuff. It's very, very cool. One Mr. Jensen Button was the ambassador for Coach Built Whiskey on this tasting. And I've got to say, the whiskey is really good. If you like Scottish whiskey... Which I do. Which you do. But you don't have... A kind of the oddest way for me to describe this is, is it's a bit like a selection box of whiskey in that it's a little bit peaty, it's a bit sherried, it's a bit briny, it's a bit uh, kind of vanilla and fudge and cocoa, and it's really, really nicely balanced. They've bottled it at forty six percent, so it's got a bit of bit of punch to it, but it's not overly harsh or aggressive. And the best thing is. It's £42 a bottle from coachbuiltwhiskey.com, which, frankly, if this had a Johnny Walker label on it, it would probably be 70 quid plus. So I strongly recommend, if you like scotch, if you like, you know, even if you, I think if you don't know what you like or you don't think, oh, it's got to be Pete, it's got to be Sherry, it's got to be this, whatever, this will please a lot of people. The packaging is very, very cool. It will be a really good gift, but also it's a really good daily drinker. Coachbuiltwhiskey.com. And if they want, if they're listening to this, you know, we're happy to say this. Every Highly week. unlikely, <laughs> but let's. <laughs> you know, we'll happily say this every week if you pay us some money. I I like the sound of that. I need to give it a go. Um, I was very cynical when I saw yet another celebrity oh God, yeah. whiskey endorsement deal come up. I thought, oh God, no! It's another please, hate Jensen, club. Don't have le- yeah, don't don't lend your name to something that's just some cack. But it turns out that actually that's not the case. So I'm definitely going to have to get hold of that. I am on the Brooklady Port Charlotte. Oh, always a ten year old, heavily peated Isle single malt. Uh, this is an old favourite. Uh, I haven't had it for a while. I've got a fresh bottle and it is still delicious. So that that's me for today. I do need to order some new stuff because I was looking through going, oh man, I've had all this on the podcast quite recently. I need to get some <laughs> new things in there. Um, but for the time being, I'm going with an old favourite. Anyway, let's move on to this week's review. And we're looking at the Dukes of Hazard from 2005, the movie, not the TV series. Chris... Tell us about this film. If we had such clips on this, this would be the perfect time for that lamenting Waylon Jennings famous theme tune. But we don't, so we're not going to. This is a... I was going to say remake, but it's not a remake. This is very much in the same vein as the Starsky and Hutch movie with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. It we is, should do that on a future, a future podcast. We should, but I think this earns its place here. And what we're going to do is, I think, well, let's talk about the film 
and then we'll get on to the car stuff because I think the car stuff is much more interesting than the film. Um, this is the story of Bo and Luke Duke and uh, Daisy and the dad whose name I've, I've forgotten. And there's two things going on. So one, there's a race around Hazard where some famous driver who... Uh, I'm losing the world to live to describe this already. So there's a rivalry <laughs> for the race... Boss Hogg has got plans for Hazard County and he's framing the uh, the Duke brothers to get them out off their farm so that he can start strip mining it. The plot doesn't really matter. This is, like I say, it's, it's not a reboot. It's kind of like a modern take on the Dukes of Hazard. So you've got, you know, the good old Southern boys making moonshine, moonshine running. You've got uh, Burt Reynolds as Boss Hogg. You've got Jessica Simpson as Daisy Duke, and it's all kind of. Let's talk about let's talk about the film. Let's get this out of the way. The film's not great. It's kind no, of no, no, no. Let's 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 let's. The film is shit. Like it's <laughs> really shit. This is a film as seen through the eyes of a thirteen-year-old boy who has been told about. <laughs> Middle America hillbilly shit kicker idiots. Every single person in this film, apart from Jessica Simpson, is an idiot and does idiotic yeah. things for no reason. They are all just a bunch of good old boy fuckwits. And it's very, very difficult to to get through a, a whole watch of this movie without rolling your eyes until they <laughs> fall out of the sockets. I watched this a couple of days ago with my wife saying, I need to rewatch this for the podcast. And I've never seen it all the way through. I, the only reason I know about this movie is that this is, or was, I think, one of the first movies that Tanner Faust worked on as a stunt driver. Oh. Alongside Reese Millen and a bunch of other uh, drivers. He is the guy that did the famous roundabout um, drift hang on, that you hang can on, find on. on YouTube. Right, right. Like, let's we'll get that to bit. that in a minute. But oh, yeah, either way, the problem with the movie is my memory of the Dukes of Hazard, the TV series, is that this was kind of slightly laid back fun. It wasn't mm. obnoxious stupidity rammed in your face. And the movie is exactly that. These characters are just assholes doing dickish things whilst wearing inane grins and trying to be quote unquote funny whilst actually just being wankers. I really struggled to like any of the principal <laughs> characters. And it is saying something when you think that the person that comes out of this the best is Jessica Simpson, who, for better or for worse, does a reasonable job with a thankless task. Mm. So I, I, looking at the casting, I think Burt Reynolds as Boss Hogg plays Great it casting. With, works, it works well with a certain level of majesty. He tries, but he's not given no. you know, this movie with a decent script or with more to work with for more for Burt Reynolds to work with would be elevated enormously. He's trying, but they're not giving him enough to work with. See, I think part of the problem with this is the the lead actors. You've got Sean William Scott, who has come off of the American Pie franchise. So they've done the third one. He is Stifler. He's playing a more brainless Stifler here, a sort of a supposedly sort of more childish is Stifler with the edges rounded off, but it's still a, a, a brainless a brainless goon who happens to be good yep. at driving, apart from the fact that he puts his hands on the top of the steering wheel like all moronic Hollywood drivers do. <laughs> and then you've got Johnny Knoxville, who this is, I think, after the first Jackass film. And he he does this thing when he's acting. So if you watch the Jackass films. The bits where I think Johnny Knoxville kind of works best is when he's not laughing hysterically. And in this, he laughs hysterically a lot. And it's so... I was reading various bits of trivia and, and watching some interviews in, in the run-up run to, to talking about this. And the recurring theme was they gave this script initially, apparently, to Ben Stiller and uh, Owen Wilson and sort of said, look, we've done Starsky and Hutch, let's do Dukes of Hazard." And they read the script and went, no, this is stupid. They gave the script to the original 
a cast of Dukes of Hazard, and they went, no, this is awful, we're not doing a cameo. Sean William Scott reckons that part of the problem was that it's PG-13, and it would have been better if they'd allowed it to be an R-rated film. Um, I think he is... Wrong. Wrong. Um, I think it just needed a better script. Um, yeah. There is an interesting... There's one interesting idea in this I kind of actually liked, because if you watch the TV show and you watch this film, you can see where the writers have kind of gone... They've, they've taken the bits and they've kind of copied them over and there's references in there. But the Dukes of Hazard bits in Hazard County are kind of timeless. They're, they're kind of of a time and of a place. They then drive in the General Lee into Atlanta, in like modern day Atlanta, where people kind of going like, why are you driving around the Confederate flag, you know, you clan wearing, clan joining, you know, hillbilly rednecks. Yeah. That thought, bit sticks out like a sore thumb from the rest of the movie. That one scene where people take them to task over having the Confederate flag on the roof of the General Lee and they don't go any further with it. They don't go anywhere else with that yeah. thing. It's kind of, it happens and then, and we forget about it and we carry and move on and do some silly college japes. You know um, what? The actually, most unrealistic college I have ever seen, <laughs> where every single room contains an unbelievable amount of scantily clad hot women who are all really keen on Johnny Knoxville. I mean, let's be honest here. The male gaze in this is bay-worthy lecherous. It's not as bad as Bay at his most most lecherous, but it's not far off. No. The most and- the most self-aware moment is I think when Jessica Simpson says, I'm gonna have to shake my ass at somebody to get them out of trouble. And and that is as far as it goes, <laughs> where she's clearly like, I know what I'm here for. Yep. Um which in you know endeared that character to me far more than than Sean William Scott and Johnny Knoxville doing some kind of mess of of American pie and jackass crammed together set inside the General Lee. Yeah. Um, I struggled with it. I struggled with it a lot, but let's talk about the driving. The driving is why we reviewed this, why we watched this movie. It's why we've got it on the podcast because the stunts are brilliant still. Even yeah. now, this is two thousand and five, mm. and everything is as practical as you'll see in any of the Fast and Furious movies. And you know the the stuff with the car with the with the car going sideways the enormous jumps, the kind of ludicrous jumps where you're just watching for it to hit the ground and all of it to bend and then for them to cut to a shot of a perfectly unbent car driving off. There's a joy to that, but also the fact that this isn't some kind of horrible CG and here's the jump, but we've enhanced it and here's a CG car crashing as you get in some some of the Fast and Furious movies, let alone Ooh. some of the, the, the pale imitators. All of this is practical. And I think it was prompted by... Me seeing a video, more on that later, with, with Tanner Faust talking about cars in movies. But one of the jumps, they had something like 40 cars that they just fired off of a cannon, hoping that one of them would fly straight and true for the for a stunt where they jumped onto a freeway. Did you watch the blooper reel over the end credits? Yes. Because there's that scene where they fire this car, and it is genuinely, what, 20, 30 feet in the air? Yeah. And then it lands... You realise when you watch the bloopers, it's landing on four lanes of cars driving. I mean, obviously, it's like stunt cars, but it's actually trying to land a car in amongst other moving cars and keep it out the barrier. And And it was all done. It was was kind of almost to the laws of chance. We've got 40 cars or whatever it was, Mm. and we're just going to keep firing them up here until one of them does what we want, (laughs) and then we'll we'll cut and print. Uh, It's an approach that, it's kind of charmingly lo-fi mm. and obviously all of the driving stuff is is done for real and it they keep cutting to the interior of the general lee and Sean William Scott is is doing a frankly pathetic attempt to look like he's actually doing the driving. Oh, now, And right. some of it is really obvious green screen, but any of the exterior stuff, I, there are moments where you can go, I can almost plainly see that's Tanner Faust in a bad wig. <laughs> <laughs> there are some bits, actually. There's, there's one shot in particular where Sean William Scott does a J-turn, and apparently he did like, a month's, month of stunt I know driving. the one you mean, and I remember watching it thinking... Is that for it? You did a thing. Well done. You did a thing. <laughs> but th- there is there's this thing that I noticed as well, and it's a testament to how good the exterior shots are. That they 
I can't remember what the name is. Isn't Nick Rigg? Where they put the car basically on a trailer and they're acting while like the car's going down the road, but they're not actually driving it or steering it or anything like that. And if you watch it again, Johnny Knoxville is doing this thing where he's like bouncing in the seat, pretending that they're on gravel and nobody else in the car is. And, (laughs) And there's this just disconnect between like the interior shots and how good the exterior shots are. And I think the stunt coordinator who did the driving scenes, I think he also did the Bourne films as well. Because, I mean, this is properly car- uh, cameras mounted, pointing at wheels. There's a really yeah. nice shot right through the bonnet where the car, the camera, sorry, rotates and it's looking down the street. Um there's some creative stuff here, and the driving's fantastic. That that aforementioned roundabout drift shot that you can find oh, on I YouTube, love where that. I love it you so watch much. the General Lee do an absolutely millimeter perfect drift around a roundabout. Now it's wetted in traffic, and so on in traffic, and the traffic's all obviously driven by stunt drivers. But it is, it's a, a mark of such car control. It's wonderful. It's and and the scene that it's in, you don't get that big, broad, wide view. I think they might cut to it once and then they cut away again. So you can't really see just how brilliant the work is. But what's on screen is is almost all, when it's an exterior shot, it's all real and it's all the better for that. Although I do laugh when they get to the race at the end and all the other cars are really shit and slow <laughs> and, and are passed like they're stood still because presumably they hadn't decided to change down three gears and mash their foot to the floor. Um, and I must admit, I don't think this movie actually does the mash the foot to the floor shot. It does do the change gear shot because they have that kind of like aeroplane thrust control thing that they have in the challenger um the t is that what it's called the t-bar i i don't know i thought that was the the people from greece that do the greece <laughs> the, lightning that's the t-birds and if you want to review the t-birds of greece, right barry norman's <laughs> review of greece is on uh, youtube is it really i mean i'd be interested to see to see that actually i secretly love greece it's not even a secret i love greece (laughs) (laughs) i I, I won't spoil the review but i i it is it's a very good review it's very very good um one one bit of trivia and i didn't find this out from the dukes of hazard film because the general lee is so iconic there are so many people into the general lee there's a lot of General Lee videos on Win uh, Vinwiki. Winwiki? Vinwiki. Um Winwiki sounds like a very odd carnival game. Um <laughs> in, and there's 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 the guy who does the movie cars that has the beard, whose name I can never remember, who has done quite a few about finding like early General Lees and what have you. And there was one question that was always always a bit of a hot topic in the community, which is what colour were the General Lees painted? for the TV show. Now, you're going to go orange. But there's like uh, Dodge colours at the time that were kind of similar, or maybe it was like this, or maybe it was like this. And somebody got a paint chip from the uh, one of the screen-used original General Lees, and they took it, and you know they do those like spectroanalysis things where they point a device at it and it reads like the colour yeah. values. That colour is in the kind of generic paint database. And if you can guess where it's from, I will give you a million pounds. What, as in what manufacturer well, and what car? What the reference for that paint colour is in this paint database. A General Lee orange? No, that would have been far too easy. It's, <laughs> so, it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's TNT Express Orange. All right, yeah, I can see that. So yeah, next time we see a TNT lorry, that is the exact colour of the General Lee. So to to sum up, well, wait, wait, <laughs> sorry, before we, before we sum up, there is a link between the Dukes of Hazard movie and Tokyo Drift. What other than Tanner Faust doing the stunts? Yes, there is an actor who appears in both of them. Uh, and if you get this again, I will give you a million pounds without googling it. Um, no, you've got me. Go for it. The girl that they go and see in the college dorm, whose character name escapes me because it doesn't matter. I think they, 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 they called it Sorority Girl in the credits, I seem to remember, <laughs> because there's like 15 <laughs> credits that all just say Sorority Girl, because anyway, that's as much characterization as they got. The actual American one that, that they had a history with and who actually then goes on to be part of the film, 
Right. She was the girl in Tokyo Drift who was in the Dodge Viper. Oh, of course she is. You're right. Yes, I knew she looked familiar. I was watching thinking, I've seen you somewhere before. I don't know where from. You're right. Absolutely. It's it's that girl who was so, just like, hey, the winner gets me because I'm a massive slut. Uh, so, <clears throat> sorry, and, not and, judging and, at all. <laughs> Another Fast and the Furious reference, drink. Shall we sum up and move on? Yes. In summary, this movie's terrible and you shouldn't watch it. it it's not even not even dumb enough. You know, we sometimes we review films and we, we say, look, just go with it. It's just fun. It's just some silly fluff. This is just dumb. And the only fun is, is in the chase sequences. And there are some of those, but there's yep. an awful lot of kind of cruddy, tedious plotting and lazy hillbilly humour that, that really misses the mark. And I can't really recommend it for, for that. Uh, I, I would watch the makings of on, on YouTube and find <laughs> the clips of the car stuff and just yep. skip the movie. We're, we're, we're basically saying give this one a miss and go and find all the car stuff on YouTube somewhere. Hopefully somebody's done a super cut of it. Uh, but yes, Dukes of Hazard. I, I, when I finished watching it, I, I said I really want to go and just watch the series again to see if it has that same like offensive stupidity no. because I remember it being far more gentle, yeah. humorous, and you know with far more likable characters than this crock of shit. I watched a couple of episodes and it's Saturday afternoon capers. Yeah, it's the Duke brothers going out and catching a possum before it eats the crops or whatever it is it's they do big jumps and daisy duke is still like a very sort of sexualized character and still questionable character in some respects her her womanly wiles to to get what they need but yeah again it's i would sit down happily with the family and watch an episode of dukes of hazard and it would seem a bit small and rural and twee but it has a charm and it's that charm and it's that kind of yeah that's what this film lacks it it lacks any kind of charm and a good script. I think, yeah, well, that too. But anyway, <laughs> yes, that was the Dukes of Hazard, and you may wonder why we put ourselves through this. And the answer is, we do it so that you don't have to. <laughs> anyway, let's oh, move on. If we ever do T-shirts, we watch films so you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I must have nicked that from somewhere. That cannot be an original thought. <laughs> But let's very quickly skip through to what Henry Catchball has been up to since we last podded. There's been tons of stuff, but our yes. pick for this is his recent film for Carfection on the Jaguar XJR15. Which is a, a really interesting car for a number of reasons that he goes into. And a car that I think is getting better with age in terms of looks. Um, I remember Clarkson reviewing this on one of his Christmas div- uh, videos, DVDs, Um Ask your parents, kids. And, um, yeah, I, I think Henry it, driving this sort of spiky X-race car in the rain. And, you know, he, he brings the history of it to life. Um, I think it makes... It does make the car more desirable. I think if I if I was swimming in money like Scrooge McDuck, having watched that, I would have gone and I still and bid wouldn't on buy it. one. I wouldn't go near one. I mean, you can go and bid on it. I'm not going to go near it. I'd go and have either of the two cars he talks about as it being the mix of the Porsche and the Mercedes from their F1 CLK GTR and the the Porsche GT1. I think either one of those cars would be infinitely more desirable to me than an XJR15. But that said, you know, it is rare beyond rare. I have seen one once. Yeah, I saw one at the McLaren Technology Centre when I went and visited there the one time where I was allowed to go in. Um, <laughs> somebody parked one alongside the helicopter pad on the boulevard. And wow. I remember thinking, what on earth is that? I had no idea it was a Jaguar and, wow. and had a nose around it. And, and, you know, they are very, very, very rare. And so they have, you know, value in that. But would I want to drive one? Certainly not based on, on Henry's startled expression as it tried to kill him at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> yes, you have to be uh, have to be very on your game. Speaking of YouTube picks and cars trying to kill you, my video pick is one from, I think it's from Driver61. It is. I've watched this too. It's a good pick. And it is, um, so there's, there's two things. They did a video a while ago where they put, uh, F1 show tyres onto a Caterham, which was a bit silly. Now they've put F1 show tyres onto a Toyota MR2, which is even sillier and fantastic. It's all done to be, like, serious, but with tongue very firmly in cheek. Oh, 
it's fantastic. And the um, it answers two questions which you never knew that you wanted to ask. One is, why was the MR2 not called the MR2 in France and Belgium? And the other is, what happens if you wrap a man in tyre warmers and turn them on? <laughs> <laughs> which uh that's it's a good video please go and watch it because it's awesome anyone doing like stupid things to make everyone <laughs> realize that the pirelli tires that formula one uses are absolute shit and that the drivers are far too polite or and or instructed under the pain of death not to criticize them <laughs> whereas people who are just you know i've bought some show tires and they're absolute cack and they make my car terrible uh god bless there's them. a joy there's a joy in that for me because um i i have a vendetta against pirelli tires Fair enough. however what is your channel? So my channel, my channel, my channel <laughs> is, um, God, this whiskey is good, is um, one called Samit. And this, after you had um, Noriaro on the last episode. And yes. I don't know if we've had Albo before, who's also a kind of a guy in, in Japan who, who does sort of JDM uh, chasing. This reminds me of as well of some of the videos that... Um, Fielding Shredder, the brilliantly named uh, drifter, did when he went out to Japan. Basically, it's a guy who is uh, lives out in Japan, as far as I'm aware, was uh, training and practicing and having fun at uh, the Ebisu circuit and was there when there was the 7.3 magnitude earthquake. So he... Where he's staying... Uh, no, obviously he doesn't live there. Um, where he was staying, he's got footage inside, like, during the earthquake, which looks terrifying. They then went up to Ebisu the day after. Sections of the track are washed away with landslides and just the devastation is astonishing. And um, he's gone back since and he's been helping raise money for the to, for the circuit. He's been going back sort of periodically and sort of showing how they're, they're recovering and clearing and mending after the earthquake. And... Yeah, it, Ebisu is such a, an, an amazing drift circuit and it's so iconic. And to see how quickly it just vanishes in an earthquake is is shocking and astonishing. But he's a proper car guy. He does really good content. It's really, really watchable and definitely um, another one I would recommend, along with, uh, if you don't already, uh, Rob Darm's channel, which, again, like I say, like I said earlier, I've been sort of binging, and it's been, um, yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff on there. So I've 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 cheated and done two channels now. No, 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 that's all right. That's it's okay. We all do it. Well, you do it all the time, all the time, uh, and then I <laughs> sometimes do it all the time. So I've got the video we mentioned earlier on, actually, from oh, I forget who did it. Actually, was it GQ, GQ or one of these? It was a GQ video. World record stunt driver rates ten car stunts in movies and TV. How real is it? Question mark. This is Tanner Faust talking through a number of Hollywood car scenes uh, to rate them on in terms of realism and difficulty, including stuff he's worked on. And uh, it's quite an interesting, it's quite an interesting watch because of how honest he is about the difficulty of some of the stunts, some of the the facts that he reveals about how they were done. Um, some of which I'd read and some of which I hadn't. You know, the, where they're talking about the no time to die DB5 drift scenes where they mm. had to paint the, the the cobbles with like coca-cola or something to give them enough grip that they could actually drive the car on and do controllable drifts otherwise it was just uncontrollable squealing and spinning is <laughs> it's it's a fascinating fact and you know hearing him talk about the tokyo drift scene where he's driving backwards at 60 miles an hour and how difficult that was to do is really revealing it's a it's a fun watch of seeing what uh, a genuine stunt driver thinks of other people's stunts as well mm. i guess there's there's a sense of of fraternity and hey you know what everyone who drives this stuff is brilliant it's it's definitely worth a watch and for my channel we've gone with another up and comer uh here from these channels with 3.1 million subscribers <laughs> to a young gentleman by the name of alex brundle who has a recently started youtube channel called brundle colon behind the wheel which has a sort of combo of Alex's own work, both his work in endurance racing with um, inter-Europol competition, his increasing work in historic racing, lots of stuff from him racing historics at Goodwood, 
some fascinating interviews with his dad talking about racing at Le Mans and scariest racing moments. And, you know, that that kind of access is is the kind of thing that Sky very occasionally does. But Alex can just, you know, FaceTime his dad at any point and go, <laughs> Dad, what was the scariest thing you did in a Formula One car? And then stick it on YouTube, which which I love because if you have that kind of access to that kind of Formula One resource, then why the hell not? Oh, God. And yeah. also, I think something of his that's gone, uh, that's not gone viral per se, but has certainly reached a larger audience is him explaining the current Formula Two machinery in terms of the car and, and particularly the engine, mm. which is really fascinating stuff. And those are the videos that have had the most views on his channel. He's only got just over a thousand subscribers right now. And I would love to see that we could add maybe another couple to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to overstate our reach, but it's really engaging stuff. It's a little lo-fi, but that's that's cool. Um, he's giving you an insight into what he's doing in racing cars, and he's genuinely a racer. This isn't mm. you know this isn't a YouTuber buying racing cars and pretending. You know this is a guy who can race and and is racing at the highest levels in endurance racing. You know, this is a, a multiple Le Mans entrance, podium finisher. He's won the LMP3 category. He's competing in LMP2 this year. He's one of the, the hot shoes who mm. really, really should have a factory uh, LMPH or oh, LMP1 hypercar drive. He really should. There's no reason why he shouldn't be in one of those cars. He's definitely good enough. But if it means, you know, he gets to do more historic stuff and so on, more power to him. But yes, please, please, please check out Brundle Behind the Wheel as a channel because there's good stuff on there and it deserves more views and he definitely deserves more subscribers. Uh, and with that, that brings us to the end of this particular podcast of the, sorry, this particular auto movie podcast. Please, please, please do tweet about us, rate the podcast on your podcast repository of choice, subscribe if you don't already, although how you're listening to this, if you don't subscribe, I don't know. If you've come across us on our YouTube channel, please subscribe to that. If you haven't, please go and subscribe anyway. Any kind of thing we can do to juice the numbers is is super helpful. Uh, we promise to do more promotion and a more regular podcast schedule, assuming we don't all get COVID again. I think we're now off to go and jump a massive orange car across an enormous ditch and total it in the process because let's face it none of those landings were smooth (laughs) until next time everyone 